Welcome to the BC Messenger Podcast. It's April 2023, and this is our ninth episode of the BC Messenger Podcast. My name is Steve Hall. I'm here with my wife, Jennifer, and we host this podcast. Good to be with you again. It is good to be here, and this is real (laughs) science, real Bible, real history, and real world. Well, we're going to start the podcast off this month with a trivia question. And for all of you Bible scholars out there, all of you who have a lot of Bible knowledge, what well-known event in the life of Moses happened at a place called Rephidim? What well-known event in the life of Moses happened at a place called Rephidim. Now, bonus points if you can think of two well-known events that happened at Rephidim. All right, that's our we'll trivia question. give you some question. time to think about it while we go through some of our other content. That's right. And try to resist the temptation to Google it and just wait and hear the answer later in the podcast. Yes, as we get into Rephidim and talk more about that. Well, Jennifer, give us the bullet points for today's podcast. Okay, our featured topic here for the month of April is, first of all, uh, the history of the missing millennium discovery. We are going to share some of Dr. Ardsma's personal story and how his journey led him to the missing millennium discovery decades ago now. And you may be surprised to learn what Dr. Ardsma set out to do after he finished graduate school and where his pursuit of truth ultimately led him. After that, we will have the research updates um, about Rephidim, as we just mentioned. Very exciting, ongoing work there. And then a quote of note on aging, Aging 101. This month is going to be a pop quiz. And then we have a new feature called I've Got Questions, with a question emailed in from a fellow over in Australia. And then closing out with our popular feature, Helen's View, where we hear from Dr. Ardsma's wife from behind the scenes. Listeners to our podcast are familiar with hearing us here talk about what we are calling what we've called the missing millennium, the missing millennium discovery. We've made reference to it numerous times along the way, but we really haven't taken the time to explain what the missing millennium is in detail. What is this that we keep talking about, this missing millennium? Dr. Ardsma discovered in the mid-1990s that a full millennium, a thousand years, had been accidentally dropped from traditional biblical chronology. Now, you have heard us mention the traditional dates versus the corrected dates here on our podcast. We've said that many times. The missing millennium discovery is the key that unlocked tremendous progress in the field of biblical chronology and historicity. All the work that's been done here at the biblical chronologist over the past decades has flowed out of this discovery, even down to the anti-aging vitamins, which we are going to get to in a little bit here. And all great discoveries have a story behind them, of course, of what path the scientist went down as he um, came to the realization of a new understanding. And so that's what we want to do today. Right. So today we want to share how this discovery happened, uh, what transpired during Dr. Arzma's journey that led him to this new understanding of biblical chronology. It's an important history that helps bring to light a greater understanding 
of the missing millennium and its significance. It's good to look back sometimes, and I know this is, this is true in your own life. It's good to just take the time to stop for a minute, look back, understand how we got here, where we came from, and understanding the history behind uh, the discovery here will help us in understanding where we are now, how, how we got to this point. So, Jennifer, you were there when it happened. Uh, Dr. Arzma, maybe some listening today do not know this, but my wife Jennifer is Dr. Arzma's daughter, and I'm, uh, of course, that makes me his son-in-law, right? That, that works. And uh, so <laughs> I would like you, Jen, to just share the story with us and with our audience today about your father, about the missing millennium discovery. How did all this happen? I think everybody would be interested in hearing that. Okay. Yes, I was there when it happened, although... For a lot of the story, I was a young person growing up and, of course, didn't really have a grasp at all of of the events that were transpiring in my father's life. But I do have the history on it and ready to share that with our listeners today. So dad, um, even going back to his high school years, had an interest in the age of the earth question, which, of course, is a big question in science and for for Bible believers today. And uh, heading into university, he had uh, been influenced by reading a popular book at the time in Christian circles, The Genesis Flood by Whitcomb and Morris, soon after he had gone to university. He uh, pursued his undergraduate degrees there at the University of Guelph and then entered into the PhD program at the University of Toronto. And Pursuing his interest in dating methods and understanding ancient history and resolving these questions between science and the Bible, he went into his graduate studies getting in on the ground floor of radiocarbon dating using particle accelerators, which were fairly new at the time, I believe. I remember as a girl hearing terms like accelerator mass spectrometry going around the house. And so he was... You never had those kind of terms in my family? You didn't hear that growing up? that Well, no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But in the home of a scientist, these are the kind of terms that you'll hear. Yes. And, you know, being the daughter of a scientist... I got to have cool things like um, science experiments done at my birthday parties. Very cool. It was cool. (laughs) Okay. So he started down this this course in his PhD studies um, wanting to investigate radiocarbon dating and wanting to get a real grasp of it and be thoroughly educated in it. He took several electives while he was there from the geophysics department, including a geochronology course. And chronology was really what he was interested in. So he graduated with his doctorate degree in 1984, when I would have been eight years old. And after that, he did some post-doctorate, doctoral studies there, before going to be part of the faculty at a well-known creationist uh, organization. And that would have been in 1986. So our family moved from Canada, of course, where we had lived. Uh, They relocated from the Toronto area down to San Diego, California. So we moved into the U.S. As he got started there working at this new institution, he began to investigate questions that he had had during his graduate studies about the radiocarbon dating. He did not graduate 
with full confidence in the radiocarbon dating, but he was thoroughly educated in it and knew what questions to ask. His first task, or one of his very early tasks there on the faculty, was attempting to fix a calendar date on Noah's flood. This uh, is an important question, of course. Um, I think we've used that quote on the podcast before, that if Noah's flood was a real event, it needs to have a real date. And my goodness, something that um, major in Earth's history shouldn't be that hard to find. Now, it's important for our listeners to understand that the organization where um, Dad went to work had some founding premises, as most organizations do, and one of the founding premises of the of this group was what we would call a cataclysmic flood model for Noah's flood. So the understanding was that Noah's flood had been a major globe-wrecking cataclysm that had shifted tectonic plates, that had caused thousands of miles of continental separation, that had made all of the fossils that had um, had ocean floors erupting and just pure chaos on the entire globe at the time of Noah's flood, which is all an extra biblical understanding of that event, right. I would add. But this is what that group had strongly put into the foundation of their understanding of Noah's flood. You know, the Bible doesn't teach that the flood had all of this catastrophic effect on the earth. Um, there are some verses that are talking about the windows of heaven open and that kind of thing. But to to have the, the kind of beliefs that we have grown up with about the flood aren't necessarily biblical. They are extra biblical. They, right. They are, they are ideas that are being read into the text. So as he was searching for this date of Noah's flood, he is looking for a cataclysmic event. And along with that, he is incorporating, of course, his uh, knowledge of radiocarbon dating and trying to resolve this question. Now, at this time, uh, radiocarbon dating began to be able to be calibrated by tree rings, tree ring calibration for the radiocarbon dating. And through that, which was very new at the time coming on the scene of dad's field of work, dad was able to gain confidence that the radiocarbon dating, the tree ring calibration was all very sound. Some of the questions he had had coming out of graduate school were then resolved through this method of checking. Basically, you can check the radiocarbon dating by the tree ring calibration back to 10,000 years ago. So to, so to clarify, he came out of University of Toronto questioning radiocarbon dating is, is the story, what you're saying, went to this creationist institution to help show that it wasn't probably, there was something wrong with it, and ended up finding that, to be totally honest, there's nothing wrong with it. Exactly. And it's actually quite accurate. Quite sound. Quite sound. And so that, of course, then really calls into question what is going on with Noah's flood. Right. Because we have tree rings going back 10,000 years. We have archaeological remains going back thousands of years past any biblical date of Noah's flood. And so at this point, I think Dad faced somewhat of a 
crisis, uh, feeling like he was hanging over a cliff by his fingernails because it seemed that, in all honesty, he might be finding that Noah's flood was not real. I have a memory of our family, which um, was always trained in the ways of the Lord and in the Bible. I, I remember us singing the Bible stands um, in family devotions a lot during those years. And I think Dad, as he was working through these questions, wanted to sing that. Now, I asked him about it, and he said he can't remember for sure about singing that song, but that's my memory from my vantage point. So here he is at this creationist institution being totally honest about what he's seeing in the science and saying that it looked to him that a cataclysmic Noah's flood had to have been 10,000 or more years ago. Now, Which doesn't add up. With... That, of course, is tricky biblically to get right. that to work. It's also tricky with groups that don't want to hear those kinds of ideas being put forth. So he did come under attack for even suggesting that Noah's flood could be that far back. So to clarify, when when you're saying you're saying ten thousand years, it, the radiocarbon dating goes back that far. So what he's saying is, if there was a flood with such catastrophe in the Earth, it had to have been back before ten thousand years ago, because there's no evidence of it in in the radiocarbon dating before 10,000 years ago. Right. I think my understanding is that the tree ring calibration goes back 10,000 years. And so it's an independent check on the radiocarbon (laughs) dates uh, up to 10,000 years ago. So we wouldn't have tree rings going back 10,000 years if the if the earth had been through a major cataclysmic flood, you know, sometime like maybe two to 3,000 B.C. or something, which is the neighborhood of the biblical dates. We wouldn't have tree rings. We wouldn't have archaeolo- archaeological remains dating before that if the whole globe had been wrecked by um, right. a globe-changing cat- catastrophe of Noah's flood. So right. okay. that's why he was saying, look, if we're going to find this cataclysmic flood, it's going to have to be 10,000 or more years before. ago. Right. So uh, like I said, he came under attack for these ideas or for just these research findings, you know, and even experienced some physical illness as a result of having to figure out how to handle this, but be able to be honest and try to navigate these difficult waters. So as time went on, he was able to continue to investigate these questions, even though um, it was a difficult setting there in the institution, but he was able to carry on with his work. Now that he had determined that a cataclysmic flood would have had to have been 10,000 or more years ago, he began to investigate, well, where is this extra time biblically? What are we not understanding in the Bible record that could give us that much extra time? Because traditional chronologies, of course, had never gone back that far. And so this is what got him into biblical archaeology for the first time. Now, he's not an archaeologist, so he certainly didn't go out to the excavations and dig things up. Right. He didn't become uh, Indiana Jones and put on his safari hat and go out and do archaeology. (laughs) No, what he did was he read about the findings of archaeologists and 
uh, trusting them, of course, uh, to do the expert work in that field and report their findings. And then he could go in and do his work as a chronologist. So he began to read all about biblical archaeology. And while he was reading a book on the archaeology at Jericho, he noticed that the conventional biblical chronology date for Joshua's conquest of Jericho had not worked out. And this is a repeated theme in the biblical archaeology. Uh, But he noticed that there was a destruction layer roughly a thousand years earlier, which might work. So he saw that and he thought, well, it's certainly not there at that date. But looking at the biblical record and looking at these archaeological findings, I could see it there a thousand years earlier. So he went over and read about I. Now, a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with the biblical story of the destruction of I. Spelled A-I. A-I. Sometimes we call it A-I. It's very significant archaeologically because of the great heap of stones that was raised there after it was burned. Again, he found the same thing. There's nothing there like that at the traditional date for that site, but a thousand years earlier, there was. And so at this point, the missing millennium thesis was born, but it was not a great light bulb moment. It was not, you know, angels singing and like, here it is, you know, wasn't that at all. It was like, he noticed this, you know, and then kind of tucked it away mentally and carried on with his pursuit of trying to figure this out about Noah's flood. That was really what he was after, was the biblical chronology of the cataclysmic flood. So he had no idea of the significance of what he had just stumbled upon with these two matching pieces of evidence and had no idea what was going to come down the road from this humble beginning. He wasn't trying to do archaeology. He wasn't trying to figure out Jericho or I, he was focused on the flood. And so, you know, a thousand years was interesting, but it certainly didn't give all the time that would have been needed to get back before 10,000 years to have a cataclysmic flood. Well, and it's also such a leap outside the box of conventional thought. I mean, I'm sorry, earlier. earlier, Right. right. Um, So sure. Right. In fact, um, he, he realized that this was something unusual that he had stumbled upon. And since he wanted to stay focused on Noah's flood, he tried to give his discovery away and got the attention of a conservative archaeologist and said, hey, you know, I've seen this in my findings. I'm seeing this correlation. Maybe you want to take this and do something with it. And I feel like history is probably repeating itself here somewhere. Um, I bet you're going to say this archaeologist said, oh, my goodness, what a wonderful find. Thank you for giving me this information. This, yeah. This is just, this is just. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, but no. <laughs> right. It's so um, crazy how these things can go down. So yeah. instead of being welcomed as what interesting data, I will look at this. Instead, it actually brought further fire down upon dad for somehow breaking with tradition or becoming some kind of unconventional guy with far-fetched ideas or something. Not matching the paradigm. Right. This is not our paradigm. This is not, these are not our premises. And so no thank you. So um, he continued his foray into archaeology and still trying to figure this out about the cataclysmic flood. 
Now, he eventually learned that the Chalcolithic peoples in Palestine, which was a pretty advanced civilization, had ended with everybody disappearing. And they had disappeared at the new date predicted for the flood by the missing millennium hypothesis. Most people think they disappeared because of climate, climate change. change or right. Other. But they don't know where they went or why they disappeared. To this day, we don't know what no. happened to them. So that's an unusual coincidence. And I think for those studying chronology would tell you a triple you know, synchronism like this uh, where you keep seeing this repeated thing happening a thousand years earlier than the traditional date, that's a pretty pretty good sign. So at that point, he felt confident that the disappearance of that civilization must have been due to the flood, since that was the date predicted by this missing millennium hypothesis. And lo and behold, a civilization goes missing. So um, so let's rehearse here. One thousand years. If he, what he's saying is, if we move the dates back. 1,000 years, right? we suddenly do find something that looks like Jericho. We suddenly, and again, having made one change, right? we suddenly do find uh, a place that, like the Bible describes, of I in the Battle of I, and suddenly we find a civilization disappearing off the, off the planet. Right. Exactly. We don't know why. All these things happening because 1,000 years was inserted, right. a millennium. And it's not like they're finding the place. I mean, the place is known, like Jericho is known, I is known. But what what they're doing is they're piecing back, piecing the history of these places going back. And they're, and they're looking at the destruction layers and all of that. And they're saying, this happened during right. this time, this happened during this time. So this is giving him enough confidence now to right. say, okay, let's go forward with this. Now, here's the big game changer that happened to him at this point. Okay, we have a flood that wiped out an entire civilization, at least in this particular area. What we do not have is a cataclysmic flood because um, the pre-flood archaeological remains were still there, undisturbed in place. And like like we said, you know, the tree rings going back earlier than that. So we have a flood. We do not have a cataclysmic flood. So the good news was that his confidence in the historicity of Genesis was strengthened, but his job security was very shaky (laughs) at this point (laughs) because, as I mentioned earlier, the cataclysmic flood was a founding premise of this organization. Now, here at the Biblical Chronologist, we're not saying it was a local flood or anything like that. We we certainly believe, based on all the research over the years, that it was a global event. It was a major right. event. It was not cataclysmic. Um, it was in the sense a that many have of flood. Us have grown up thinking it was a lot of water. Deluge. Yes. Okay. So he faced the leadership of of the institution with his findings. This continued to get him into hot water with uh, the folks there. And eventually he made arrangements to depart uh, because there wasn't going to be able to be a path forward at this point. He was trying to be honest with his research findings and the group was trying to hold to their founding premises and it wasn't working. So he made the decision to head out And, of course, the question then became, head out to where? 
right? What am I, where am I going? What am I doing? I mean, at this point, I uh, myself was in uh, late high school and our family had deep roots there in the Southern California area. And he was grappling with the question of what should I do? I mean, I've got this missing millennium thesis. Somebody needs to investigate this. I'm not going to be able to do it in a secular institution if any secular institution would have hired him after his eight years uh, with the creationist organization. So he eventually decided he was going to have to just go out on his own and be able to just be free from institutional ties and preconceived ideas so that he could really investigate what was going on with this new discovery and whether it would continue to hold water when put to the test. So our family relocated to East Central Illinois. Now, why would he choose that? Right. East Central Illinois, farmland, uh, the heartland of America, corn, soybeans. Well, the University of Illinois there in Champaign had an entire wing devoted to archaeology. And that was really what he needed to get into was the archaeology so he could find out if these biblical events continued to show up earlier, a thousand years earlier. This was before the the day of Google searches and all of that that we have today. So that library was very important. Right. The internet was on the verge of emerging, but it had not yet really emerged to be able to be useful to anybody to do research. And so he would drive down to the university and he would spend days in that library. And it was a big sacrifice for them personally because their income was very small. They had a large family to support, but God rewarded them for their sacrifice in what I've heard dad refer to as the golden years of discovery, where, you know, just Light bulb after light bulbs kept coming on and it kept adding up. And he would open the archaeology books and look at the thousand year earlier dates and he would repeatedly find confirmation for what the Bible was describing. And you know, paradigm shifts are hard. You know, a revolutionary idea brings with it a lot of hardships. But there is the fun part, <laughs> right? The fun part's like, we, you know, like a light bulb, light bulb, light bulb. And so that's what he was having happen at that particular time. And, you know, he had thought, this is probably going to take me the rest of my life. Gauging his progress while he was with the institution there in Southern California, basing off of that, he thought, my goodness, trying to answer these questions is going to take me the rest of my life to just, just to harmonize, you know, back to creation. But five years in, And he had had a very uh, fruitful five years and felt like he had harmonized the biblical and secular events all the way back to the beginning. Light bulbs are still coming on. Well, they are. I'm going to get into more of that in a minute. Yes, that's exactly right. (laughs) Um, But so much has flowed out. And and if you want to read about it, Steve, Steve will tell you where you can read more about the research that continued to confirm this missing millennium thesis. Right. Dr. Ardsma recorded during these years uh, all of his discoveries and findings in his newsletters. This is where the biblical chronologist, that term even comes from, uh, the biblical chronologist newsletters, 
at biblicalchronologist.org. You can go there today. You can go there and, and click on newsletters, and there's an entire page right there you can read. Click on HTML version or the PDF version and follow all the way back to the, to the mid-90s, his path. And he's left it all uh, as it was discovered, even some of the error, even some of the, the, the parts where he's gone back later and corrected and said, Correct. no, he wasn't quite yeah. right on that. He left it all just as he found uh, found it. And, and you can go back and, and follow that history right through there. It's a great resource to go back and look into. Yeah. So five years in, he had resolved all of the big questions to where he felt confident that he had unified the secular and the sacred chronologies. Hmm. And so then he had to figure out what direction to go next. He had had a lifelong kind of hobby interest in the longevity question, the aging question coming out of Genesis and the long lifespans there. But he had never really considered devoting himself full time to the aging question. But now that he had harmonized the secular and sacred histories and was able to construct an accurate timeline going back to creation and had also gained some uh, very important knowledge about the nature of Noah's flood, he was really poised Um, He was teed up to be able to really address the aging question from a vantage point that had never been done before. So not only did he have a lifelong interest in that question, uh, now he really felt an obligation to tackle the question of why the lifespans had dropped off so dramatically after Noah's flood. And of course, he knew it was risky. I mean, he could spend the rest of his life on the on this question and and not reach an answer and also he knew he would be uh, further sacrificing his reputation in order to do this because of course um, most people think it's a very outlandish idea that you'd be able to find a cause for aging right. you know thinking about the flood again although the flood was not cataclysmic like we have have thought maybe in the past or been taught, a, a true catastrophe for sure, but not cataclysmic in the sense of made all the fossils um, rapidly laid down the layers of sediment, caused the continents to split apart, you know, form the Grand Canyon. The truth is the most catastrophic, cataclysmic result of the flood was the shortening of human lifespans. Yeah. And and us now having the lifespans that we have had now for so many years, I mean, that, that was a true catastrophe. Right. And when they came off the ark, they had no idea of what the coming generations were going to have to face in this dramatic reduction of life expectancy. Right. So like I said, dad felt an obligation, a humanitarian, you know, question, why are we dying so young? So he began to delve into that. And now that didn't take no five years, let me tell you what. <laughs> so so no. um, I think it was closer to 20 years, give or take there. That's a big question. Yeah. That's Yeah, you're not going to answer that in a day. So that took him into um, detailed analysis of Noah's flood and what happened globally there. And so 
20 years in, give or take, uh, he had brought that question to a conclusion. And of course, you've heard us talking about the anti-aging vitamins. And so he has been able to circle back around yep. and he is continuing to research more and more details. And well, continu- he answered the question of the aging, which is what we're trying to communicate here and right. bring the message through this podcast and other means. And so now he's able to get back on some of the, the uh, well, specifically the Exodus, the route of the Exodus. And right. We'll get into that in a second. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the story of how it all happened. The missing millennium. Um, the uh, missing millennium and what that meant in his own life and where that has led to today. You know, God's the great storyteller and God's the mastermind behind all of it. Now, next month, Lord willing, we want to explain a little bit more of the technical part of the missing millennium and where is that biblically? Where, How do we correct the chronology and, and how does that line up with our understanding of the biblical text. How so did this happen? We'll get, right. yeah, how did it happen in, in the manuscripts and whatever. So we will get into that next time. But I think having this story, this history on it from a personal perspective yeah. is helpful. Yes. And just real quick before we end this section, let me mention that we are no longer wondering about the date of the flood. And it was not 10,000 years ago or more. That is a settled date now, corroborated in a number of ways in which you can read about, if you'd like, in Dr. Arzuma's book, Noah's Flood Happened 3520 B.C., which can be downloaded or purchased from biblicalchronologist.org. We're going to keep moving right along here. We mentioned a second ago about the light bulbs that just continue to come on uh, in the research work, and here is one of those, uh, the most recent discovery is the location of the biblical place called Rephidim. Dr. Arzma has continued to work on mapping the route of the Exodus, identifying the places that the Israelites camped when they left Egypt over 4,000 years ago. And he's now identified six of the 11 uh, stops from Egypt to Sinai. Now, Rephidim is an important location in the Israelites' journey, and this is going to take us back to our trivia question that we had at the very beginning of the podcast. This is the place where some very significant events took place. Rephidim is talked about in Exodus chapters 17 and 18. It was the last stop of the Israelites before reaching Mount Sinai. So, Jennifer, answer to the trivia question. answer to the trivia. the, The question again was, what well-known event in the life of Moses happened at a place called Rephidim? And there were bonus points if you can think of two. Think of two. Okay. So the first and probably most well-known is the event recorded of the miracle when Moses brought water forth from a rock. Moses water from the rock. struck a rock. God told him where to strike it, and water came forth. Yes. For the very thirsty Israelites yes. who had been traveling through the central Well, that probably is Negev. event number one right. that, that this place is remembered for. Well, what about a second one? Okay, so maybe you thought of the water from the rock. Second one is um, a battle with the Amalekites. Now, there were a lot of battles that they fought there, especially as they went up into Canaan. But this particular battle is the one in which Moses held up his hands, and the Israelite army prevailed. And 
Aaron and Hur came and stood on each side of him and held his arms up, and Israel won the battle. And this happened at the location called Rephidim, where the water had come from the rock. Right. They were up on a precipice, the Bible story says, looking down on the battle, and they would hold his arms up and they would prevail. Yes, we all remember those stories from Sunday school. You just may not have remembered or known that they, that they took place at this location called Rephidim. We do hope to do a featured topic on Rephidim on our podcast in the coming months, but for now we can just know that the site has been identified. Archaeologically, the various people groups mentioned in the biblical account are shown to have been present at this place that is in Israel, in in the Sinai Peninsula today. You can go and visit it. Of course, it's, there's no sign there that says this is the biblical Rephidim, but, but it is we, called Resisim. Resisim, yeah, which that's interesting. And the unique landform, the typography of this site, correlate exactly with the biblical account, even down to the water that was brought forth out of the rock that Moses struck. So we ho- we hope this whets your appetite to go read the article and uh, see for yourself what this discovery is. Uh, Dr. Arsmith just published these findings just, just two weeks ago yes. from, from now when we're recording this podcast. This is very recent research developments and findings. And again, flowing out of the missing millennium discovery, everything at this particular site is dating back uh, to the date expected by the missing millennium for the Israelites in the wilderness. And the archaeologists don't know they're the Israelites. They call them mysterious, mysterious peoples. peoples, right. Right. They have a lot that they don't understand. And, and again, you have to have the Bible to finish the story. That That's what they don't have. They even think these people are going the, the, the wrong direction. They think they're heading toward Egypt. They don't see it as... They have left Egypt heading toward Canaan. Correct. So, and if they would take the Bible seriously, they would find that there are numerous books devoted to what was happening with these people groups there at this in time. the desert. Right. Well, the unique details of this specific site once again help us to understand much more about the biblical account. And once again, we just stand in awe of God and his works in history. All right, so shifting gears a little bit here, we have a quote of note that you can see if you look up our show notes that are emailed to you. By the way, if you don't get that, we always want to try to remind you of this. You can get on biblicalchronologist.org and go subscribe there to the podcast, and then you'll get an email with our it's kind of like a newsletter online. It's we call it our show notes. And we have a picture there of a mug. And the mug says this, that the meme says this, When I was young, I was poor. But after years of hard work, I'm no longer young. So, <laughs> no yeah. longer young. Right. <laughs> right. Um, aging seems inevitable with the passing of time, right? We can work towards different goals. Uh, we may or may not achieve those goals. But one thing that is has been uh, guaranteed to happen for the many thousands of years now is that over the decades, we will lose our health, lose our mobility, uh, and our bodies will break down due to aging. So that's a lighthearted quote. But um, here at the Biblical Chronologist, of course, we have a different perspective on this. Well, that takes us into Aging 101. 
this segment that focuses on all that is currently known about aging. We talked a minute ago in Jennifer's testimony about the missing millennium and the discovery and how it has led Dr. Ardsma to delve into the question of human aging. We want to give some basic, the basic principles of that through this Aging 101 section each month. Okay, class. And it's time for a pop quiz. Pop quiz time. In Aging 101. Who's going to do this? I'm going to give the quiz. You're going to give the quiz? To me? I'll, I'll give you the quiz questions. Gonna, How about that? Oh, I'm going to answer the questions. <laughs> That's what you're saying. <laughs> okay. Oh. Yeah, you should be prepared. We've had four, right? Four <laughs> lessons on, on aging. Okay. All right. Uh-oh. All right. It's been a long go. time since I've taken a quiz. Pop quiz, verbal quiz. Okay. All right. Here we go. Oral, oral answers. Here we go. Okay. Question one. True or false, aging is a natural process that is pre-programmed into the human body. Aging is a natural process? That is false. It is not a natural process. It is a disease process. Cha-ching! Good job. All right. right. You got it. (laughs) All right. Good. We know that from Genesis, of course, because uh, people's bodies have not always aged and broken down the way they're doing today. Okay. Question two. What is the life expectancy for U.S. males today? Life expectancy for U.S. males today. 81? No, that's the females. That's females. Okay. Uh, 79? Nope. 78? Nope. <laughs> Keep counting down. 77. <laughs> one more, one more. 76. 76. 76. Mm. 76. For U.S. males. Yeah, I mean, if you make it past 76, you know, you're above average. Um, and many don't make it to 76. Yeah. Now, we're not just trying to study aging today. We are trying to point out that the life expectancy before Noah's flood for thousands of years, what was, was a that? Whole lot higher Do you than know what that was? That's This is a bonus that. question. Uh, well, I mean, Adam, they all lived 900. Yeah. I mean, on Ish. average, it was 900 yeah. years, give or take. So 76 compared to 900, that's uh, quite an enormous difference. And we should not settle for thinking that our life expectancy today is somehow inevitable or normal or natural. And there's a very real world answer as to why it's so different. All right. I'm ready. Question three. Question three. Aging falls into what category of diseases? What category of diseases? Vitamin deficiency. Well, deficiency diseases. Deficiency Deficiency diseases. diseases. Right. You're deficient in something. You're not getting something you need. And the body is falling into a disease state. Right. As a result. Okay. Question four. How many anti-aging vitamins has Dr. Ardsma discovered? How many? How Uh, many? Two. Two. Vitamin MEPA and vitamin MEPIA. Very good. We're calling it. Very good. Thank you. Question five, last question, true or false, only people age 45 and up need to supplement the anti-aging vitamins. Old people age Only 45. old people <laughs> ages 45 and up. Uh, that is false. That is false. false. Everybody needs the anti-aging vitamins. That's it correct. It can be a mistake to think that only old 45-year-olds and up correct. Need, the, need the vitamins. Because <clears throat> aging uh, is a process that is happening in the body um, – Quite early right. in life. Well, I did pretty good. Yes, you did. Yeah, hopefully. Pass your card to your neighbor read. and grade each other's quiz. <laughs> 
And if any of our listeners are wondering what in the world we're talking about with these quiz questions, hey, we started Aging 101 series on the podcast back in December of 2022. So you could easily go back and begin listening there and reading right. reading the show notes and get yourself up to speed with what uh, we're discussing here. Heading into our next section, which is called I've Got Questions. Uh, we are going to be featuring different questions that are emailed in from people at, from time to time. And these questions can have anything pertaining to content on the podcast, anything at all. Send us your questions. Here's a fellow from Australia named Wade emailed Dr. Ardsma with a question about giving the anti-aging vitamins to his eight-year-old son who is on the autism spectrum. So let's listen to this correspondence between Wade and Dr. Ardsma. Right. Uh, Wade's question is this. He writes in and says, Hey, I trust you're doing well. I recently ordered my first vitamins with thanks. I found your work through your farm in Instagram. Uh, We grow strawberries and mulberries in South Australia. I had an affinity for watching your successes and challenges there. And then I got this impression that either you were, quote, superhumans or that I was really kind of, well, weak when looking at your output. He's talking about uh, the farming, the uh, uh, strawberry farming, probably in particular, that uh, Dr. Arzman used to go on. Used to do here. It doesn't happen anymore. Right. Wade says, I reread your book on aging and the newer info is just fascinating. Thank you for the updated work and testimony from your family. I have an eight-year-old boy on the autism spectrum. Do you see any major contraindications for him using MEPA or MEPIA, that's the anti-aging vitamins, to calm and regulate the mitochondrial dysfunctions that he seems to have? So that was his main question. And then a little bit later on in his correspondence, uh, Wade says, very kind regards as a hugely impressed follower of your work and efforts. And then Dr. Ardsma responded to Wade with this answer. All my children are grown and gone, but if I had a child with autism, I would not hesitate to put that child on both vitamins, MEPA and MEPIA. My reasoning would be that development, both mental and physical, can only be improved by the anti-aging vitamins and hindered without the anti-aging vitamins, just as is true with any of the traditional vitamins. And then again, uh, skipping down uh, to the end of the correspondence, Dr. Arzma says, I much appreciate all your kind words and thank you for your encouragement. And I just want to be sure our listeners know, of course, that they can obtain the anti-aging vitamins for themselves through the Biblical Chronologist website. Uh, There are two vitamins, but they are bottled together in one bottle uh, as liquid drops and can be mailed to you at your request. If you have any questions or need any help with that, please do let us know. And we want you to take seriously um, the need to avail yourself of this newly discovered supplement. We have Helen's view now, and uh, Helen's going to talk to us a bit about another branch of Arzma Research and Publishing over here. We do produce a math drill, Dr. Arzma's Uh, math and spelling drills, actually math and spelling. And she's going to give a little history on that. And Jennifer's included in this little history. Right. Yes. I'm part of the story again. That's what happens when you're father and daughter, I guess. So, (laughs) So, uh, but yes, dad is uh, 
an inventor at heart and uh, a scientist. He likes to solve problems and figure out new ways of doing things. And so he has done that in many different areas. And Helen's going to talk about a little bit of that today. Some history of Dr. Ardsma's online drills. In Gerald's opinion, basic math flashcard drills is the key to building a truly solid foundation for math at the grade school level. For success in higher mathematics, one really does require a solid, rote knowledge foundation of the basic math facts. To ensure such a foundation in our children, Gerald systematically drilled 600 math facts with them, working through a select subset of these each day. We did this as a supplement to the regular textbook or computer CD curriculum from grade 1 through grade 7. Gerald started doing this with our oldest child, Jennifer, roughly four decades ago, using a set of homemade flashcards. She was in second or third grade at the time. Gerald had been using a very thick set of homemade flashcards to drill the basic addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division facts with Jennifer. He was working on a Ph.D. in physics at the time, and he knew how important it is for children to have the basic math facts memorized as a foundation for all future work in mathematics. Jennifer, unfortunately, did not have the same mature perspective on this daily math drill her daddy had. She was a sharp little student and had no problem learning the facts and reciting them, but she quickly became bored with the whole routine. She found it much more fun to experiment with her daddy's patience, impishly delaying as long as she could manage for a whole myriad of postulated reasons and giving wrong answers just for the fun of it. Computers were just beginning to become available, but at a steep price. So Gerald built his own. He wrote his own operating system in conjunction with his own assembler, and then he used his assembler to write his own math drill program, all as a fun after-hours diversion from his Ph.D. course of study. We don't have any statistics on this, but we think there is a very good chance Gerald's math drill, Dr. Arzma's math drill, as it is now called, was the very first computerized home educational math drill in the world. The computer didn't mind sitting and waiting all day for the answer if that was Jennifer's choice, but it kept track of her best times on each math fact and heartlessly beeped at her and subtracted points from her final score if she didn't answer fast enough. It also took off points if she had got an answer wrong, and it kept track of which facts she was having trouble with and drilled those more often. Gerald's job was reduced to merely monitoring Jennifer's progress by checking the score, which the computer printed out after each drill. The computer math drill worked like a charm. To be perfectly honest, it did a much better job of drilling the basic math facts than Gerald had been able to do with the flashcards. For one thing, it never made mistakes. For another, it remembered Jennifer's performance from lesson to lesson. This allowed the computer to drill facts she was having trouble with more often and it allowed the computer to know when Jennifer could answer more quickly. The result was a fast-paced, customized drill which put Jennifer in competition with her previous best performance to see what new level of performance she could come up to each day. Jennifer was given a very thorough drill of basic math facts each day, and Gerald was released to pursue other goals and fulfill other duties. We kept that basic math drill running in our home school for over 35 years. 
Since 2011, Dr. Artsma's math drill and Dr. Artsma's spelling drill have been web-based at www.drartsmasdrills.com. Dr. Artsma's spelling drill contains a spelling bee utility, which we are hoping eventually to develop a national spelling bee tournament around. Jennifer has grown and married with eight children of her own, and they now do their daily spelling and math drills using Dr. Ardsmus math and spelling drills as part of their home school. Why change a winning formula? It's always great to spend time with you for a few minutes each month. I do want to express my gratitude and thanks to Jennifer and Steve for this podcast and the hard work that they are doing. They bring many talents to the biblical chronologist and we thank the Lord. Okay, if you're interested in Dr. Arzma's math and spelling drills or know someone who might be, there is a website, drarzmasdrills.com, and it's very simple to uh, get a, a year's subscription to that. What is it, $16 or something? Sixteen ninety-five. I believe. I do recommend it. We've used it all the years of homeschooling our kids. It's a time saver. It's a no-nonsense way to learn it for life. That's yes. the byline for Dr. Ardsma's drills. And hey, you can now follow us on Twitter. If you're a if you're a tweeter, tweeter. <laughs> if you're a twit, uh, you can follow us in the town square of our day, as it's called. Uh, biblical historicity needs to be brought to the forefront of the discussion, and Twitter is definitely a place where discussions are happening. Not always a friendly place. No, um, not at, always. To say the but... least. But you know what? We're armed with the belt of truth, and we want to use every avenue possible to advance the kingdom of Christ in our day. So, hey, follow us on Twitter. We're on Facebook as well. The BC Messenger. Yep. That's uh, our podcast now has a Twitter page as well as Facebook page. Yes, and you will find the BC Messenger. Um, any of our podcast content is fair game for our Twitter page. And if you come on to our profile and go to where it says replies, you can see a lot of the different conversations that we've been engaging with there on Twitter with those who have serious questions about the historicity of the Bible and believe that it's purely mythological. We'd love to have you join us there. Well, thanks for joining us. It's been a good episode. If we can help you answer any questions, let us know, and we'll see you in May. May. Bye.